0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Sacred Scripture, Violent Verses. How Should We Read the Bible's Texts of Terror? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 15th, 2012. There's lots of talk these days about Islamic violence, but the lectionary readings for the last month show how sacred violence is deeply embedded in our own holy scriptures. Consider the following text from the last several weeks. The Lord put Saul to death because he showed mercy to the Amalekites and their king Agag. First Chronicles ten fourteen, 14, Samuel 15. God had commanded Saul to, quote, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. 1 Samuel 15. After his death, the Philistines mutilated Saul's corpse. We read in 1 Samuel 31. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreth and fastened his decapitated body to the wall of beth And then again in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel made amends for Saul's misguided mercy. We read, He hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord. First Samuel 17, David beheaded Goliath, then took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. And then the readings this week provide two more grisly texts. When Uzzah reached out to steady the ark of God, we read the Lord's anger burned against him because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God, 2 Samuel 6. And in the gospel reading, Herod beheaded John the Baptist after a dinner party dare. In fact, there are many more and even worse violent verses in the Bible, like Deuteronomy seven two in chapter twenty, sixteen to seventeen. You must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not leave alive anything that breathes, completely destroy them. And in Numbers 25, the priest Phineas was praised for his zeal when he slaughtered an Israelite and a Midianite woman with a single thrust of his spear. Today the Eastern Orthodox Church celebrates Phineas as a saint every year on September 2nd. We could produce more examples. In his recent book, Laying Down the Sword, Why We Can't Ignore the Bible's Violent Verses, Philip Jenkins at Penn State has a table that lists what he considers the 19 most disturbing conquest texts. Back in 1984, Phyllis Tribble coined a phrase for the title of her own book that ever since has served as a proxy for violent verses like these. She called them texts of terror. Her book back in 1984 explored the humiliation of four women, Abraham and Sarah's slave, Hagar, in Genesis, Jephthah's unnamed daughter, his only child, who was killed by her own father as a human sacrifice, Judges chapter 11, the gang rape and murder of an unnamed concubine by the men of Benjamin, Judges, chapter 19, and Tamar, who was raped by her brother Amnon, 2 Samuel, 13. Today we would call all these texts of terror genocide, crimes against humanity, or war crimes. Yes, the Bible is a bloody book. These stories are not a new problem. The earliest believers struggled with them. Down through the century, readers have developed numerous strategies to interpret these texts. Most of these strategies contain elements of truth and are partly helpful, but none of them are fully satisfying. At the end of the day, the texts of terror remain part of our Christian canon of Scripture. Most believers ignore these texts as having little practical relevance for their lives. We naturally gravitate towards passages like Jesus' Beatitudes. In his book, Jenkins observes how even a three-year cycle of weekly Bible readings, like the Revised Common Lectionary, omits the texts of terror. In theory, all Scripture is equally important. But in practice, most of us invoke what some people call a canon within the canon. That is, consciously or unconsciously, we privilege some parts of the Bible over others. Still, we ignore the texts of terror at our peril, because many believers have used them to justify their own violence. A religion is more than its texts. And so many readers emphasize God's perfect character over a finite human text, however sacred. An early bishop named Marcion, who lived from 85 to 160 AD, rejected the violent deity of the Old Testament in favor of the Heavenly Father, of Jesus. A contemporary example of a similar outlook is Robert Wright's recent book, The Evolution of God, 2009, Wright argues that religion has evolved from the barbaric, polytheistic deities of the Stone Age to the benevolent, monotheistic god of the three Abrahamic faiths. It's obvious that the crude stories of sacred violence reflect the savagery of their ancient cultures. They're no worse than what every people or religion did back then, or, for that matter, today. For example, when Jonah preached to the Assyrian Ninevites, he was going to a people that scorched its enemies alive to decorate its walls and pyramids with their own skins. Related to all this is the observation that the violent verses are historical descriptions of tragic events, not moral prescriptions for us to follow today. The violent acts of minority extremists are rare exceptions and don't represent the core values of a religion's mainstream majority. Early Christian exegetes like Origen, 185 to 254, employed allegorical interpretations that de-emphasized the liberal meaning. Many readers today read the Bible for spiritual or moral meanings. Many Muslims similarly insist that the true jihad or holy war is waged in the inner soul rather than against external enemies. Yet another strategy is to appeal to God's wisdom that's incomprehensible and inscrutable to mere mortals. Who are we to question the Almighty? Job chapters 38 to 41, for example, are a withering divine interrogation of over 70 questions that God puts to Job. Any number of biblical texts echo Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Some readers say that the Canaanites were evil and that they deserve their fate, but this is a dangerously self-justifying strategy. And finally, many interpreters read these texts with a greater or lesser degree of historical skepticism, and not as reliable eyewitness reportage. Since these texts were written about 500 years after the purported events, and since they enjoy little to no archaeological support, Jenkins says that we should treat these stories with real historical skepticism. He urges us to dig deeper for a core message. For him, the imagined war against outside peoples and customs symbolized a rejection of any and all things that distract or separate a people or an individual from God. For Jenkins, that core truth is the fundamental implication of radical monotheism. In other words, the absolute God deserves unconditional obedience from his chosen people. However helpful these various strategies of selective editing are, Jenkins arrives at a surpassing, a surprising conclusion they aren't necessary. Instead of avoiding the violent verses or explaining them away, we should read, absorb, comprehend, and even preach these texts of terror. And in a line of argument that he mentions but doesn't develop, he quotes René Girard of Stanford, whose important work on religious violence has argued that the Bible is the first text to present sacred violence from the perspective of the victim. And so, paradoxically, it's for biblical reasons that we criticize the Bible. That might be about as good as it gets when it comes to the text of terror. For books this week, I review a title called Life Gets Better, The Unexpected Pleasures of Growing Older. The author is Wendy Lustbader, New York Penguin, 2011, 243 pages. In this myth-buster of a book, Wendy Lustbader deconstructs the glorification of youth, and the negative stereotypes about aging, in order to affirm what more and more social scientific studies have documented, that the latter years of life can be the most satisfying years of all, in almost every way, except for our diminishing physical capacities. A 2008 survey of 340,000 Americans, for example, found that, on average, older people are happier than younger people. Luss Bader has been a social worker and psychotherapist who's worked with senior citizens for 30 years. She's also kept the journal since the fifth grade. In this book she combines her personal and professional wisdom to document the very real pleasures of growing older. She incorporates a wide variety of sources, interviews, anecdotes from her clinical practice, informal conversations and observations with friends, scientific research, and her own personal experiences of aging. The book is highly anecdotal. Lussbader allows the elderly to share their own stories about aging. She organizes her book into three sections, each of which has eight chapters. Under the idea of hope are chapters on self-knowledge, gratitude, the great leveling, relationships, loss, spirituality, generosity, in giving and receiving. Part two on the theme of transformation considers time, hindsight, decisions, detours, resilience, coherence, stories, and changing course. The third and final section about peace explores courage, the body, attitude, slowing down, composure, beginner's mind, the heart's desire, and what matters most. As we grow older, we're more comfortable with compromise, more accustomed to ambiguity, able to face success and failure with wiser perspectives and more willing and able to enjoy the present moment. In the last chapter Lusbader draws upon the scriptures of her Jewish heritage. Lord teach us to number our days that we might present to thee a heart of wisdom Psalm ninety twelve. I enjoyed this book, and I recommend it along with a similar one that extols the wisdom of the elderly. That book is by Carl Pilamer Thirty Lessons for Living Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans based upon his scientific study at Cornell University of a Thousand Elderly Americans. Once again, the author Wendy Lustbader, the title Life Gets Better For Movies This Week, I review a film from 2009. It's called The Way We Get By. Aaron Godette wrote and directed this documentary film about three senior citizens in Maine who were part of the so-called Maine Troop Greeters. It turns out that Bangor International Airport is the main exit and entry point for U.S. troops leaving for and returning from duty in Afghanistan and Iraq. Their website says it best. Day or night, rain or shine, it is our commitment to welcome each troop home from war and give a proper send-off to each of the young men and women heading overseas. We accomplish this by being here at the airport to offer free cell phones to call a loved one, a snack to keep them going, and handshakes to let them know we care. Since we began greeting flights in May of 2003, the main troop greeters have greeted over 6,400 flights with more than 1.3 million service members. And it's our pledge that as long as there are U.S. armed forces serving overseas, we will be here to greet them. The film focuses on the stories of Bill, a veteran of 32 years, Jerry, a retired iron worker, and Joan, the mother of writer-producer Aaron Godet. Says Joan, whose two grandchildren, Amy and Troy, pass through their airport gates, Everyone says, be safe, but they're in the middle of a war. How can it be safe? So I love greeting the soldiers who return, but it's too difficult for me to watch them leave. The cover of the DVD case indicates that the way we get by has been a selection at at least 16 different film festivals. I watched it on Netflix streaming. And for poetry, we've posted a classic hymn called Abide With Me by Henry Light. Henry Light lived from 1793 to 1847. He was a Scottish pastor, writer, and poet who was plagued by ill health his entire life. He died just three weeks after he wrote this famous and favorite hymn. Abide with me, fast falls the even tide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day, earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. Not a brief glance I beg, a passing word, but as thou dwellst with thy disciples, Lord, familiar, condescending, patient, free, come not to sojourn, but abide with me. Come not in terrors as the king of kings, but kind and good with healing in thy wings. Tears for all woes, a heart for every plea. Come, friend of sinners, and thus abide with me. Thou on my head in early youth didst smile, and through rebellious and perverse meanwhile Thou hast not left me, oft as I left thee. On to the close, O Lord, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What by thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who, like thyself, my guide and stay can be? Through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight, and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still, if thou abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks, and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Henry Light, Abide With Me. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. Sunday, July 15th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Glendenin.